Hi there. I'm Dr. Sarah Wilson, naturopathic doctor, author, practice mentor, researcher, and passionate connector of the dots of health. As the medical director of Advanced Women's Health and the founder of Naturopathic Clinical Mentorship, I help patients and practitioners to deeply understand the connection between hormones and inflammation so that they can improve their most complex health concerns or cases. Advanced Women's Health, the podcast, is a space for practitioners and discerning health consumers to learn about cutting-edge research in the area of women's health. Before we get started, though, let's set the ground rules. This information is not meant to diagnose or treat. I am a doctor, but not your doctor. I completely understand that you're going to want to implement some of these strategies. We are talking about really compelling stuff, but please always do so with a medical practitioner's support. So let's dive in. Hello, everyone. Spring is springing here at this time of recording. And so I hope that you guys are all enjoying the sunshine and a little bit of warmth that is starting to creep in. Um, It's very appropriate that we're talking about change of seasons and warming temperatures because today we are going to talk about parasites. And, you know, there is a parasitic and ticky time of year, and it is when it's nice out. Uh, But before we dive into the episode, I really wanted to discuss this with you today because what the conclusion of this research article said and what I took out of it are very different things. So this is a little bit of a cautionary tale in that researchers want to see what they want to see. And don't get me wrong, I've been there. (laughs) I have been there when you are working day and night on a project and you have a hypothesis that you are should not be trying to prove, but you are fundamentally, you're supposed to be gathering information, not looking with a bias, but we all look with bias. That is the reality of the lenses that we have in life. But I thought this article did a really good job of showing us that there may be a difference in our clinical understanding of things versus the research understanding. And so this is where it is incredibly important to be breaking things down in the research. Read the whole article. Don't just look to the author's conclusion and be like, oh, isn't that interesting? Really apply this with your own lens. So the article we're going to go through today is called New Insights into the Interactions Between Blastocystis hominis, the Gut Microbiota, and Host Immunity. So for a very long time now, there has been a debate about whether blastocystis hominis is a commensal, right? Meaning that it should be there. It is part of the healthy microbiome. It has very healthy influences in the microbiome or whether this is a pathogen that needs to be eradicated. There is hot, hot debate in this. It's similar to the Prevotella debate, which Prevotella will touch on today, actually, whereas people will say, okay, Prevotella is an autoimmune trigger. It needs to be eradicated at all times. Um, But then other people are like, no, Prevotella is very much a commensal. It has very positive features in terms of decreasing inflammation in the gut microbiome. And so what do you do with that piece of information, right? So what I do with that piece of information is I look for discrepancies. And so just like with probiotics, which I think it's really helpful for me to have that training coming in, um, is that different strains have different impacts. And I think that's what we're seeing here too. I always say, like a Chihuahua and a German Shepherd are both dogs, but they're very different things, right? They have very different impacts. And that's the same thing when we come to looking at these different bugs, is they can have very different impacts. So with Prevotella, we know that Prevotella copri 
is is a pathogenic species. It has a lot of very kind of inflammatory potential in the gastrointestinal microbiome, um, whereas different strains of Prevotella can actually be very helpful. With Blastocystis hominis, we know that there's 22 different strains. The most common ones um, in humans are strains 1 to 4, and then some people say 7. But from that standpoint, I think we need to be considering these things more strongly. And this article made an attempt to do so, but then, as you'll see, I think there's challenges to the conclusion that they made. So Blastocystis hominis is a parasite. Um, it the specificity of the strain is going to vary dramatically by region. Um, but like I said, there's 22 different strains and it affects somewhere between one and 2 billion people, which is a massive difference. It's like one to 2 billion. Um, I think to be honest, in my experience, it's just because it's, again, not tested for all that often. It might actually be present more. And the specificity of the types of testing that are done is vastly different, as we all know in our practices. If you do a basic core testing stool test versus you're doing a functional test um, that has like a stronger sensitivity PCR, there's going to be differences. Even like culture versus PCR, um, there's going to be massive differences. And a lot of places around the world where parasites are more endemic, are going to have um, differing health technologies than we have in North America. So all of these things are really important to consider. But essentially, what the premise of this article said is that people who have blastocystis hominis, um, who have, like, a lot of them don't have symptoms, and it can exist without symptoms for a very long time, and they actually have um, higher bacterial diversity than non-carriers. So that suggests that it's commensal rather than a pathogen. Boom, <laughs> they were done. They came to that conclusion early and often. So from that standpoint, um, yes, some studies have shown that there is increased bacterial diversity. And in theory, bacterial diversity is a very important thing, right? I always say you don't want one species in the jungle because the disease comes in and rips everything through. So diversity is very important. But a lot of studies, and they even recognize that, have shown decreased bacterial diversity. And we know that blastocystis hominis is associated with IBS and IBD and other conditions as we will get into in a second. This is also where it became very interesting to me. So one of the points that they broke down um, as a very important piece was that blastocystis was very associated with a Prevotella or ruminococcus-driven enterotype. Um, so they were like, there's higher bacterial richness, there is just more diversity, which is very positive. And then they were saying it's also negatively associated with bacteria. OEDs, um, and proteobacteria, which from their perspective, obviously can have potential positive impacts. Um, there was also a strong co-occurrence with clostridial species, um, those being very important, um, obviously not C. difficile, but there's a lot of commensal clostridial species that are very important in the mucosal health of the gastrointestinal tract. Um, they also showed that firmicutes were higher and Everyone wants to be firm and cute, so you want more firmicutes, right? Um, and then, but they're also saying, oh, it's so positive that there was a ton of archaea organisms, um, one of them being M. smithi. So we know that that can be very associated with SIBO. It can be very associated with constipation. So that, and also we know that depending on the Prevotella species, that's not necessarily a positive thing. So how they were kind of boasting about those things as being positive, I was very interested in, in what data they were using for that. 
Then um, they continue on talking about different species. They talk about increased Fecalobacterium species, which I'm assuming is Persinitzi, but they didn't specifically say that, um, which is another keystone species. So the ones that we're oftentimes looking for in functional testing is Fecalobacterium um, prisnitsi. We're looking for Acromensia species, and then we're looking for the Clostridial species, those being the ones that are really highly involved in metabolizing the mucus lining, turning that over, keeping that healthy. Uh, Fecalobacterium species are also associated with butyrate production, which is so important for T-regulatory cells. It's so important for like short-chain fatty acids in general, just for feeding and fueling the immune system, enterocytes, etc. So those things being increased is a positive. So we're like, okay, perfect. We can take that and add that to the positive camp. Um, and then when they continued to further break it down, they showed that there is a higher abundance of Prevotella copri. So they did break it into from Prevotella to Prevotella copri, um, which to me was like, mm, okay, don't love that. Um, and then they said that plasticist's colonization, this is a quote, was also associated with an increase in yeast and fungal species, including a variety of different species that are hard to pronounce, one of them being Aspergillus flavus. And I'm like, come on. Okay. We know from a clinical perspective that that's, that's not what we want to see. We also, as I said, some studies have shown that there is a significant decrease in diversity. Other studies have shown that there's a significant decrease in lactobacillus and bifidobacterial species. Studies not across the board, but more of them than I would like to see, have also said that intestinal permeability of patients with blastocystitis infection was significantly higher than that of healthy individuals. Like, intestinal permeability is in no way a positive thing. So if you have a lot of diversity, okay, cool, that's one thing. But if you're having Prevotelicopri, if you're having pathogenic species of yeast, potentially, if you're having increased intestinal permeability, then we can't go forward and say, oh, that must mean it's commensal. Um, we know all of these things are associated with um, a lot of negative outcomes in terms of not only gastrointestinal pain, discomfort, bowel changes, inflammatory responses within the whole body, but also autoimmunity, which was the next point is that we do know that blastocystis hominis has the capacity to impact something called TLR, um, the TLR family, TLR4 being one of them. So toll-like receptors or TLRs um, are essentially, they're intended to recognize patterns. So they're an aspect of the immune cascade that if something binds it like an inflammatory toxin like LPS, or if there's a specific piece of blastocystis like the flagellin component, right? They're going to be able to bind TLRs and activate an inflammatory cascade. So when we are talking about TNF-alpha, right? IL-6. We're talking about interferon gamma. These are the downstream outcomes of something binding to TLR4. Largely, there's also other TLRs that are involved in this. And so binding that and saying, damn, like we got an issue here. I've recognized this pattern. I do not like it. And therefore we need to activate an inflammatory response, bring some immune cells in, blow some stuff up, like 
get rid of this. And so with that, knowing that the flagellar component, um, that LPS components, um, and even another study looked at the fact that there was increased LPS in circulation of people with blastocystis hominis. So there's that inflammatory potential there that is not in any way, I think, inducing a commensal nature um, or indicating a commensal nature of blastocystis hominis. Because from that standpoint, if you have those TLRs that are activated, you have that autoimmunity risk. So you've got the bugs, you've got the genetic predisposition, now you have the intestinal hyperpermeability, it's really heading in one direction. And we do see this oftentimes um, with, for example, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So Hashimoto's thyroiditis has been associated with blastocystis hominis infection. And the way through which that occurs is through the activation not only of you guys know I, I love to talk about like cytokine skews, right? So there's TH2, which is typically associated with parasites um, and allergic atopic responses. Then there's a TH1 response and a TH1 response is autoimmunity, viral, like intracellular destruction. And we have a TH17 response, um, which is associated with autoimmunity. We have a T regulatory cell response, which is associated with the balance of everything. So in that sense, Hashimoto's is associated with a TH17 response in addition to a TH1 response, etc. But blastocystis hominis is, has been associated with an increase in something called IL-17 in patients with Hashimoto's. So further kind of pushing and inducing that response. Um, and then when we see those patients who have blastocystis eradicated, that's when we see the Th17 go down and antibodies go down. So when we can look at something and say, okay, when there's more of it here, there's more inflammation. When there's less of it here, there's less inflammation. It also leads me to believe that it's not a commensal. So that so all the study said all of those things. I obviously included some of my background in terms of studying these things, but this is what it said. And then the conclusion was, we believe blastocystis hominis is a parasite that is a commensal. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, okay, maybe no. So when, again, when we break down all of these things, putting on your clinical hat, it's very important to know all of the points of the study. And it's also very important to come to your own conclusion. So it, the limitations is that it did not specifically state or identify strains. So blastocystis one versus four, one to four or seven or what have you, because we know that there is a stronger inflammatory potential of potentially four, potentially seven. But we also don't get that information as clinicians. So from my standpoint, as much as it would have been nice to be able to break down and define those things, I also don't have that information. So I have to look at, okay, is there potential for increased abundance? Yes. Is there potential for me to increase abundance in any other way? Most definitely. Is that potential to increase abundance in other ways associated with potentially increased intestinal permeability, increased Th1 and Th17 responses in the body, increased inflammatory cytokine responses, like increased Prevotella infection, which is associated with autoimmunity, increased yeast infection. Like, can we do this in another way? And the answer in my mind is yes. We have effective treatments for blastocystis hominis that are helping with other systems of the body. 
We have ways to improve the microbiome in the absence of that. Um, And we have a lot of different knowledge as to which people are are going to be more susceptible, right? So if you catch this on someone who's completely asymptomatic, is that something that you need to treat? I don't know. That's a clinical decision at that point because there is this debate. But if you have a patient who's symptomatic, has autoimmunity, um, has an inflammatory response clearly occurring in the body, I argue that you do need to treat um, and you need to consider the whole host and whole microbiome impacts of blastocystis hominis. Now, here is another thing. We are getting more and more sensitive technologies. I mentioned this as like earlier in the podcast. As we get more and more sensitive technologies, we're going to pick up more and more and more things. So is there a point in which we need to look at the dose response? I think arguably there's a huge area of research that can occur here. So if someone has a little bit of a certain strain of blastocystis, do we need to hit it? Versus if someone has a really significant infection. So if I find this on basic core testing that doesn't have a really strong sensitivity, then I'm definitely treating it, right? If I find this in small amounts on a gut microbiome test, I have to look at the whole microbiome and say, okay, do we have yeast? Do we have Prevotella? Do we have, like, what else is going on here that could potentially lead me to the conclusion that this is a pathogenic destabilizer in terms of how it's affecting microvilli, how it's affecting um, the immune system, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where your clinical hat goes on. I know that's the answer that everyone loves to hate because you're like, well, if I had your clinical hat, we could figure this out together. Um, There are ways to do that, but trust yourself, trust your judgment, trust your spidey senses, right? And really just feel out in that patient how important this is. There continues to be debate on whether blastocystis hominis is a commensal or not, but in reading research to come to that conclusion yourself, please dive into the details. So do I want to believe that a lot of these parasites are commensal? Yes. Do I believe that the terrain of our human bodies um, and the way it is now that our gut immune responses are impacted, our stress responses are impacted, our detoxification pathways are impacted, the fact that no one poops, all of these things I think are allowing more pathogenicity of things that may have been commensal in the past. That's my hypothesis this is how I treat. I'm really looking at the person to decide if eradication is needed. I'm looking at the amount where possible to decide if the eradication is needed, but it can make a really, really big difference in your patient's health. When you break down this medical literature, you come to understand it, and then you just jump off from that point and start to figure out the best best next plan. So I hope that episode was helpful for you. Again, just a little critical thought on your walk, drive, sit at the office. Um, I love to continually bring these things because I think there's so much opportunity for research in our practices uh, when you understand it. And after listening to this, you are one step closer to critical thought on research articles. So I hope you have such an amazing day. I cannot wait to keep sharing all of this with you guys. And if you want more and more of this content, then we always do have Women's Health Insights which is our monthly membership program to give you the opportunity to dive into more research, to come to know the kind of clinical application of a lot of that research, to see troubleshooting calls, 
And then we also have Advanced Women's Therapeutics, my flagship 12-week program coming up starting again in April. So this course is a 12-week course where we meet every single week live. We go through your difficult cases in groups. We are also walking through the most common women's health conditions and my exact protocols for each of them. So from that perspective, there is no messing around. There is not an overabundance of theory. This is action, 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 because that is what I find people need in their practices. So without further ado, if you guys want more information about any of those things, you can check out the show notes. And until next time, keep researching, keep excelling, keep taking care of your patients, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this show, I would love a review because that is how more people find out about us and ultimately get well. If you are a medical practitioner and you're interested in taking one of my courses to learn how to implement these research strategies, see naturopathicmentorship.com. If you're a patient, we have a couple of options. I can try to hook you up with one of my trained practitioners Or alternatively, if you have a practitioner you love, I do offer one-on-one consults about your case to support that practitioner in learning further. For more information on these strategies, see the show notes. And finally, if you just want to keep in touch, I am always active on Instagram and Facebook, and I look forward to connecting with you there. Have a great day and be well.